Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Homecoming, directed by Sam Esmail, the creator of Mr. Robot. Based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Micah Bloomberg, Homecoming stars Julia Roberts as Heidi Bergman, a caseworker at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. Four years after starting her new life, Heidi is faced with questions about why she left the facility, and she realizes there is another story beyond the one she's been telling herself. Don't miss Homecoming, streaming now only on Amazon Prime Video. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. The flagship rewards credit card offers three times points on all travel purchases and two times points on everything else. Three times the points on travel means getting rewarded while road tripping or even commuting to work. You'll also get other benefits like a statement credit for global entry and TSA pre-check of up to $100, 24-7 stateside member support, and access to Navy Federal's online shopping center. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now. Message and data rates apply. Visit NavyFederal.org slash flagship for more information. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and calling in on the other line, definitely not where he was during Thursday's episode. It's Andy Greenwald. My commitment to this bit, Chris, is so strong <laughs> that I got in my car. I drove back to Santa Monica, yeah. parked, called you, and then somehow turned time backwards. Thursday. On so Thursdays, we are recording this on Thursday. We're talking about this for Monday's show. Uh, when you hear this, I will be overseas in England. And Andy, mm. what better time for me being in England for us to talk about my favorite British author, John le Carre, and his new show based on one of his best-selling novels, Little Drummer Girl, which is on AMC tonight. Also in the second half of this podcast, we have an extensive interview with Ben Stiller, the director of all seven episodes of Escape at Dannemora, which is airing on Showtime. It was on last night. We talked to Ben about that season, uh, the, the miniseries that he made, the limited series that he made about the upstate New York prison break that kind of captivated the country in 2015. But first, let's talk a little bit about Drummer Girl, man, because... Chris, we should also probably say that before we talk to Ben Stiller, we will somehow transition magically in audio fidelity into me being in the studio with you talking about Escape at Denimora for a bit yes. before we talk to Ben yes. Stiller. So I, we, just, well, I just don't want people to, to bump here. Yeah, I don't want you guys to freak out and think that Andy somehow is pretending to have worse audio fidelity now and then magically got it better when Ben Stiller shows up, because God forbid... Before, Chris, also, before we talk about Little Drummer Girl, which is one of the best shows of the year, before we preview it, we won't spoil it, we want everyone to watch it starting tonight, I just have a quick question. I think Shia LaBeouf just drove past me. Do you think the odds are good that he drives a Kia? Because I think it's actually, I almost didn't mention it, so I was like, it's a Kia. But, you know, no disrespect to Kias, I just feel like Shia LaBeouf might drive something a little more exotic. But now the more I think about it, I think it definitely was him, right? He definitely drives the Kia sedan. There's only two answers to this question. A, it's a rental, because all rentals are Kias. (laughs) Yes! Or B, Shia is so advanced that, like, he knows that Kias are going to have some sort of weird, ironic spike in popularity in 18 months, and he's just way ahead. It's like having skinny jeans, but, like, before the strokes, you know? I want both of these things to be true. I want to wrap my arms around both these theories and just hug them until they're out of breath. My last question I have about my, my 
very exciting sighting of <laughs> moments ago live on air, except this happened on Thursday and you're listening to this on Monday. You know, I'm sure the headlines all weekend are Shia LaBeouf crashes Kia. Why does he need a rental car? Like, what did he do to his regular ride? Uh, Specifically today. I, I don't think today. anything I speculate could be considered legal. <laughs> That's fair. You I really know what happened to Shia LaBeouf's other here. whip? I can't really get into that. <laughs> What about his other, other whip? No, we can't talk about that either. Kakaya is fielding, right. fielding subpoenas as we speak. <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. If we if we keep this up, next week's show will be produced by Kia, not, not Kaya. <laughs> That's right. Due, 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 due That's to right. legal jeopardy we've placed ourselves in. Sorry, everyone. Let's stay focused. Ben Stiller is on the podcast. Ben today. Stiller is on this podcast. But first, let's talk about Little Drummer Girl, man. So AMC is uh, airing this show. It's six episodes. Uh, about an hour each. It stars Michael Shannon, Florence Pugh, and Alexander Skarsgård. It is based on a, I think it's 70, I want to say 79. It's like 81. 81. 81, 82, 83 in there. Yeah, uh, 82. It's an 82 uh, novel by John le Carre, which is, I would probably venture to say, is my favorite writer. Uh, it is among Andy's favorite writers, I, I think. And yeah, man. it is the latest adaptation of a sort of more recent spate of Le Carre adaptations, starting with the m- most recent Tinker Tailor, which was directed by Thomas Alfredson and stars Gary Oldman as George Smiley, who is kind of uh, Le Carre's most frequently used protagonist, uh, a b- British spy master. And since then, they've done Night Manager, which was uh, Hugh Laurie and Tom Hiddleston. And they did, I think, Our Kind of Traitor with Ewan McGregor, but that one didn't get a lot of play. There are talks to start doing Smiley miniseries based around uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, etc. I wouldn't be surprised if we got into Tinker Tailor again, since it's such a rich text with those. These shows or these limited series are overseen by uh, Le Carre's sons, I believe. And they generally have... They generally are like incredibly satisfying, but a little bit light. You know, they look good. The people in it look good. They have, it's star-studded. Um, but they don't seem, sometimes have the same intellectual heft or uh, rigor that sometimes I feel like his novels mm-hmm. obviously do. That is mm-hmm. not the case for this version of Little Drummer Girl, which I have completely blown away by the first two episodes. I think what you said is very well observed. Like, the Night Manager was fun. It just wasn't like, it's not exactly a sitcom. But it felt as breezy as Tom Hiddleston's outerwear. You yeah, know, it was it a linen not, shirt. It was a linen shirt version of a Lacare novel, exactly. And and if if, if Lacare novels are anything, they are not summer wear. You know, they are they are much hardier stock. You have to wear them in for a while, like like uh, like old denim or something. So this show, so far, I mean, we're we're two episodes in. You and I, um, it's six in total. It ticks all the boxes for me of an adaptation of, of, of such a, a rich and complex text. It is, inc- it, 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 it's very smartly done. It is very complicated. It does not hold your hand, but it is also fully alive. And the, we should mention at some point the director, Park Chan Wook, who has done an amazing job here. It feels like everyone involved was thrilled to be making it, which is sort of a, ineffable kind of trait but i'm always happy to see it and the performances are great we'll get into them but the most i just made a pilot take on this is chris give the production designer an emmy this show (laughs) looks 
dynamite. Yeah. The colors, the clothes, the furniture, every frame is considered. And there are a lot of frames. I mean, this is a show that in its first few episodes moves all over the map from uh, all over the map of Europe anyway. And then it promised to travel further afield. It is really fun to watch this. And yes, I know people are wondering the runtime on those first two episodes, not short, robust 50 plus minutes. Didn't feel it. Didn't feel it either. Kate. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, I, I agree with you. The the production design, the costume design, the music, and especially Park Chan-wook's camera work and what he does with this material. Often we give like these sort of platitudes about, oh, great job here with the cinematography or whatever. One thing that I really felt like was happening on this show is that all of these different departments are actually actively storytelling. They're actively mm-hmm. contributing to the story. And I'll tell you something about Little Drummer Girl. And Lucario doesn't really tell simple stories. Little Drummer Girl is quite confusing. It's okay to get done with the second episode and think to yourself, I'm not quite sure I understand what she's doing. So this story is essentially this. It's set during a time of obviously great conflict between Israel and Palestine in 1979. And the story begins with a bombing of an Israeli cultural attache's house in Germany. And the Israelis begin to act on their intelligence and trying to find out who did this bombing and where they are and going about it that way. And to do that, they kidnap one member of this Palestinian cell, terror cell, and they replace that person that they've kidnapped with Alexander Skarsgård. And I know that that sounds unlikely. I don't. I know that that sounds like a stretch, but you just... All I want to tell people on the, about this show is to go with it because in, a some, in some way, that experience that you're having of not quite understanding whether this will work and not quite understanding what the, the ultimate goal here is, is what the characters are kind of going through. This is about people who are sort of creating, to quote the show, a theater of the real. They're essentially trying to flush out other members of this terrorist cell by creating a real-life narrative in which this British actress, uh, played by Florence Pugh, the character's name is Charmaine, winds up pretending to be a radicalized version of herself who is looking to get involved in uh, militarized politics and, and militarized terrorist activities. And Alexander Skarsgård is sort of her shepherd in this whole thing. And even though he is an Israeli agent, he is pretending to be a Palestinian. And so it's it's definitely confusing. And so much of what this show is about is these murky ideas about identity and, quote unquote, the role you are playing in life and the role of your own life and the lies we tell ourselves about our own lives and the lies we've choose to admit to and the lies that we choose to commit to. And it's just the way that Park Chan-wook films it is with this kind of dreamy, wandering, De Palma-ish verve that looks at people's hand gestures and their mannerisms. And you're forced to kind of always be wondering, is this person acting or is this actor who I'm watching on screen committed to this idea of who they are? And it, it, it winds up being this really pleasurable Hall of Mirrors. Yeah, and I think that what you're talking about brings out one of the most interesting aspects of the show, one of the most interesting aspects of the work, the book, and Lucari's, uh his entire bibliography, honestly, which is the very thin membrane that can exist between dilettante and diehard. The idea that you could be play-acting for a while 
until suddenly the guns are live. The sense that, you know, that, that ideas, radical ideas, can be chatted about in universities or at MI5 headquarters or whatever, and they mean one thing, and then they can be put into action in the field and they mean something else. At least they do to the people who are, at, who are putting their bodies at risk. The people in the offices and in the universities, maybe it remains abstract. And those were ideas that were, of course, at the forefront of thinking 30 years ago, and they remain very relevant today, even though the, some of the circumstances and some of the actors have changed. What I'll add is, if I had been on the fence about this show, which I probably wasn't, all you had to do, Chris, to get me on the hook was say that it was Couture Munich. Because, yo, people listening to this pod know how much I love the Steven Spielberg film Munich, there is in which a bunch of good are, actors... Are you talking about Eric Banner, King of down. the Jews? Listen, I would take a knee and bow before him. <laughs> if you take a bunch of good actors and you give them sideburns, and you put wide lapels on their jackets, and you tell me they're Mossad? Come on, take my money. <laughs> take all of my money. And the king, King Banna, in this film, in this miniseries, is the decidedly non-Semitic Michael Shannon. Yes. Who has transformed himself into a sort of bookish, bemused, Mossad puppet master yes. named Kurt. And speaking of what is it performance or is it real? I don't know. And I don't care. Like he's not, his Israeli accent is pretty good. Most of the time. He, like a lot of the characters in this speak English <laughs> a lot, but it's very convenient, even when they're speaking to Germans in Germany, but the excellence of the entire production just eliminates all of those petty nitpicking concerns. Because what Shannon is doing is making a person. And I rarely say this because I, like most people, I think I bump up against accent choices sometimes, you know, especially if they're inconsistent. I would almost rather they not be there. In this case, Shannon is such a good actor and he gets this part. He plays it with such verve that don't worry about it. Just seriously, don't worry about whether he's a native Hebrew speaker. He's he's awesome. I'm actually quite happy that they're airing two episodes on the first night. The first hour is beguiling, but is, is is somewhat confusing just in terms of like what's happening and and who are these people. And by the second episode, which has some overlapping narratives of the first episode, you really start to get a rhythm. And when the main characters are finally in, let me just say, an outrageously well-appointed Greek villa <laughs> um, yeah. with these just gorgeous architecture and interior design. When they finally are all together and the pieces are starting to come together and you're like, oh, I see, so they're doing this and she's doing that and they want her to do this. But even then, I mean, it's only the beginning of the twists and turns and the mind fucks that happen in this show. You know, I just can't recommend it more highly. It, it, to see... This many people just executing what is really complicated material from Lacare is quite impressive. It's 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 a really high bar to clear, and they cleared it for me. Guys, look if you listen to the watch, and if you listen to the watch, do you hear us recommend things? We should have had you at Greek Villa. Like I feel like you're already on board. Yeah, Greek Villa and King Banna. It well, Banna's not in it. Although oh, yeah. I wish he there's there's still room for him. And I heard Charles Dan a.k.a. Tywin Lannister, shows up at some point. So that's another reason to keep watching. Uh, check it out. It's a great, I think it's probably a, a great way to spend your holiday week. And uh, they're burning through all of it, which is a decision 
we should discuss after we're done through it. Yeah, so when, when we get back together after the Thanksgiving week, we will discuss this in much more detail and get into more plot points. So what we'll do now is we'll take a break, and when we're back, Andy and I are going to introduce our interview with Ben Stiller and talk a little bit about Escape at Danamora, which you can watch on Showtime. You can watch Little Drummer Girl on AMC. Andy, thank you so much for calling in, and, and thank you so much for driving all the way back to the same spot. I just want you to know that we've done a lot of things on this podcast, but me podcasting while now driving in traffic to pick up my daughter from school. I mean, this is the first. This might be a podcasting first, but as the New Yorker said, it's the medium of the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, little drummer girls. Let's get into it, Francis. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat, or even worry-free getaway service, which I love. This lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. Let's talk about something super exciting, like the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6. Now faster and more powerful than ever before, so you can get even more done, whether it's from your office, at the airport, or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop with up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor. You can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart compact soundbar for your TV and the newest addition to the easy to use home sound system. I love my Sonos Beam. You know, when I was growing up, home theaters were kind of out of reach for most people. You had to have a whole team of guys come and install it and rewire your living room. And even then, there was like some elaborate remote control and a graphic equalizer. And you had to basically have an engineering degree to hear the dialogue in your movie. Man, that's all changed with Sonos Beam. It brings crystal clear quality dialogue from your movies, and it makes you feel like you're sitting at courtside if you're watching basketball at home. Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more, all with rich sound that fills the room. Enjoy deep bass and detailed stereo separation for music plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies. All it takes is one cord to connect the Beam to your TV, and the Sonos app walks you through setup step by step, and it syncs with your existing remote. You can also just get hands-free control with the built-in Alexa. That way you can start a playlist, skip tracks, and pause simply just by asking out loud. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S dot com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Oxygen, up and vanished in a one-night special TV event. Oxygen brings to life Payne Lindsay's hit true crime podcast, Up and Vanished. In 2016, Payne took a deep dive into the disappearance of Tara Grinstead, a young teacher who went missing 13 years ago. Payne has dedicated himself to Tara's case every day, slowly unlocking the secrets her small town couldn't shake. Tara was last seen October 21st, 2005 in Osceola, Georgia. She was heading home from a barbecue and suddenly went missing. Tara's story remained a mystery for over a decade 
Then Payne stepped in. His search for the truth got the town to start talking, and the Up and Vanished podcast became a national phenomenon, reaching over 240 million people. But the story doesn't end there. Payne is still at work, determined to find answers. Don't miss Up and Vanished, a one-night special TV event based on the hit podcast, Catch Up on Oxygen On Demand, the new network for crime. Andy, what a special show we have today. This is exciting. It's Monday, uh, and you know you probably know by now that Ben Stiller mm-hmm. has a show on Showtime, a miniseries called Escape at Danamora, starring Paul Dano, Benicio Del Toro, and the amazing Patricia Arquette. It is about the 2015 infamous prison breakout at Clinton in upstate New York, and uh, about the story of David Sweat and Richard Matt and Joyce Mitchell, who sort of aided and abetted their escape. And it is now the subject of Ben Stiller's show, which is on Showtime on Sundays. And, you know, Andy and I got a chance to talk to Ben Stiller, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And by the way, we should say he wanted to talk to us, and which was incredibly flattering. And our response to it was, there's been some mistake. Let's connect you with Bill Simmons' producer. Yeah. And for whatever reason, he wanted to talk to us. And I, I, hope, I hope we justified that decision because it was, it was great to talk to him, both because it was very cool to talk to him on the phone from New York, but also because this project is really interesting. It is, in some ways, in some ways a slam dunk because it is a rip from the headline story and those headlines were pretty salacious and interesting. But it's also fascinating because of the talent assembled to make the story and the way they chose to tell the story. Because it's not just having Ben Stiller, who obviously was a director from the beginning in yeah. directing shorts for Saturday Night Live and has directed Cable many guy, films. Yeah. But this is, I was looking over his IMDb, this really is, the fir- I mean, the last films he's, the last few films he's directed have all been relatively straightforward comedies. This is not that. Yeah, no. This was written by Brett Johnson, who was part of Matt Weiner's writing staff on Mad Men and the great... Um, Michael Tolkien. Michael Tolkien, yeah. who wrote The Player and has been a phenomenal screenwriter for many years. Benicio Del Toro, Patricia Arquette, Paul Dano. I mean, this is a heavy-hitting production. It is really it is really television 2018. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a credit to the almost chameleonic eye of, of of Stiller that if you showed this to anyone, they would be like, did Sidney Lumet direct this? Is it like, who, like, is this uh Well, well does Sidney Lumet like Nick Jonas? Well, no, <laughs> yeah, we'll get into the Nick Jonas stuff, but what Stiller did here is essentially take the aesthetics of 1970s, like late 1970s cinema, like All the President's Men and Dog Day Afternoon and Straight Time, and he went upstate to New York and shot in the real locations where the story unfolded and, and you know, shot in the prison. And because of that, what you get is this really granular, detailed, process-oriented story about how these two men and this woman orchestrated this incredibly daring escape from prison. And it gets deep into the psychology of what it's like to live upstate, especially through a very long, dark winter, mm-hmm. and what what drives people to do things like this. And I think it not only in terms of of escaping, but in terms of being sort of a life of criminality like that. And I, I, at the same time, you know, he doesn't really care about likability. It's not an ironic story. It's not a, a satire. There's not a lot of comic moments it's very, 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 very much concerned with the realism and the accuracy and the chain of events that unfolded. And I would say just from a, a critical perspective, one of the reasons why I appreciated it so much, and I really have enjoyed the episodes I watched, there are um, no real spoilers. Obviously, Wikipedia is your spoiler here, but we really only talked to Ben about process and what inspired him, the specifics you can discover for yourself. Though his 
style is definitely inspired by films of the past. I really appreciated how Escape at Denimora differentiates itself from other Rip from the Headlines miniseries that we've seen recently, specifically like the American Crime Story mm-hmm. series on FX. Chris and I were both fans of the OJ series. I think we both were a little bit out on, well, maybe differently, different degrees of out on um, the Versace one. Although it, that did obviously have a, have its fans, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. um, I only bring them up to say that Part of Ryan Murphy's project there is to use these historical events as canvases on which to paint other observations about American culture at various times or even about the present. What I appreciate about Escape at Denimora is that it's deeply character-based, mm-hmm. deeply specific about these characters in this moment, and will leave whatever theorizing or generalizing to viewers later on should they choose to do that. Yeah, I think it, you know Ben referred to it as a miniseries, and it actually does remind me more of a miniseries. It right. feels more like one long story. Uh, the episodic breaks are... I wouldn't call them arbitrary, but they're not as traditional as you'd expect, you know, start denouement cliffhanger at the end kind of to keep you enticed and binging and stuff like that. It has it. It has its own tempo, and it, it, I really respect it. And just because we didn't bring it up with Ben and we're talking about the show and you guys are listening now, it's not just those three stars who are so good in it. There's also really terrific supporting performances by the great Robert Morse, the great Bonnie Hunt, and Eric Lang, who's also great as uh, Patricia Arquette's character's husband. There's a lot of detail here, and it's a lot of, I, I don't want to say fun. It's not necessarily a fun story, but it's a nice surprise to have on TV. It's a huge accomplishment, yeah. To have on yeah. Showtime, and uh, we should get into it. Yeah, let's get into our interview with Ben Stiller. Ben, I kind of wanted to ask you to, to start off with, you were. I think you were shooting Zoolander 2 when this the escape was unfolding here. So I was curious about whether or not that that, was this a captivating story for you when it was happening in the news or was it something you caught up with afterwards? I wasn't that, honestly wasn't that aware of it when I was over because I was in Italy and I wasn't watching the news a lot. I guess it wasn't really going on the Italian news stations as much as it was on CNN. I know, and I know it was all over CNN when it was happening here, but I, I really wasn't that aware of it. I can't believe that this wasn't like a reverse Foxy Noxy situation in Italy. They weren't riveted by this? Can't we give them anything back? Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, Foxy Noxy, that's right. I, I don't know what their interest level was. Uh, you know, and when I came back, it was such a New York story, too. You know, and just being a New Yorker, it kind of, I was really interested in it on that level. But, but yeah, I had no real sense it was happening but maybe somebody had mentioned it and not really until i got back and i got sent uh one of these scripts that uh brett and michael had written uh did i even was i even really aware of it to tell you the truth i, I love that you said new york story because i couldn't agree with you more i'm only recently to the west coast and chris was in new york for a long time as well so i'm sure he agrees with me on this What's great about what you've done here is that it is deeply New York, not necessarily New York City, of course, but New York State, which is its own entity that is very often overlooked because of the shininess of the city. Was that part of your entrance into the project and what's what piqued your interest? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York and I was sort of um, fascinated by the idea of what upper New York State really was, the fact that it's actually New York. Uh, you know, because as a New York City person, you always think of New York as just the city. And, and I have relatives that live up up in Rockland County, which is like you know forty miles or so north of the city. But you know, the fact that New York is just so vast and huge, and when you get outside anywhere outside the city, it just it's like a different. You know, you could be anywhere in the country really in terms of just the attitudes and some of the politics and just the 
the economic situation when you, you get into these small towns, which, you know, New York State, just are these areas that are really depressed and just so far from what, what you know, you, you think of when you think of New York as a, as a New Yorker, a New York City person. Right. And not just that, but they're as far, almost as far away culturally as they are geographically from the city. And yet, because it's New York State, Andrew Cuomo still is the governor and responsible for this on some level. And all of it is being refracted through the news media's version of it in the New York Post headlines, which gives a re- really completely different energy to the entire event. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you, you realize that just the state is vast and um, the state itself is just a whole other entity than New York City. And I, I found that when we were up there because Governor Cuomo ended up helping us get access to the prison. And at first, people uh, in the town, some of the people were a little um, skeptical as to what sure. we were doing. I think they might have thought since I was directing it and uh, I was, you know, a comedy person known as a comedy person that, you know, were we going to do kind of, we're going to make fun of them or try to do a sort of a satire of this thing. And um, I felt that uh, just in, in talking to people, and I would talk to everybody who, would, who who we would encounter, but there were even some signs up, uh, like, Ben Stiller, go home. <laughs> there were one or two of those. You're um, like, what? And like, uh, <laughs> yeah, and some anti-Cuomo cards and some windows, too. So it was, it was interesting, because, you know, I was just like, wow, I, really? I didn't I had no idea, but it was a, I could understand, as I spent more time up there, what their concern was, which was, you know, this is like this little town that nobody really pays attention to, except for when these guys escaped three years ago. And then when we came back and, and you know, decided to film there. So I think, you know, their reputation is, as you know, as a town was kind of like, all right, it's just known for this one thing. And um, I don't think they want to be known just as, you know, the, the place where the, you know, these guys broke out of or that the prison was known as this place that was, you know, so poorly run. And these people, I think, have a lot of pride about what they do up there wanted the whole story to be told. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I was going to ask you about the development process of this because I know that Brett and Michael wrote a version of this script before the sort of official report came out about it and then you guys revised it heavily afterwards. Was this something that you envisioned once you sort of had that second version of the material? How soon was it before you were like, this is a seven-hour miniseries rather than a feature, rather than a 10-episode show or a 12-episode show or something that's going to take place over the course of multiple seasons? Well, they had written two scripts that were the basis for an idea they had to do it as a as a limited series or miniseries. I, I tend to call it miniseries because of my generation, which is, I think, <laughs> yeah. Ruth or Shogun or whatever. Um so I got these two scripts and, and I thought they were really well written and really interesting. I just didn't know how much of it was actually true. And so we went back and forth a little bit about what, you know, what were the actual facts that they knew and they, and they had to make up a lot of stuff and they decided to fictionalize things that they didn't know. And I had trouble getting on board because I, I was trying to figure out what my connection was to it. If I was going to direct it, cause I was really interested in it, but I was really interested in the actual facts of what happened and how something like this actually happened in 2015, you know, in this modern day and age that these guys could actually, you know, get hacksaws, smuggle into them and cut their way out. And, and that was all about the details. So they didn't really have those details. And it wasn't until the inspector general report came out uh, and, and they had the idea, like, maybe we'll do it. Maybe it'll be an eight part series. Maybe it'll be a six part series. We don't know. Do you want to get on board and develop it with us? So I said no, because I just felt I didn't know enough. And then when the inspector general report came out, in June, I think, of 2016, 
I called him up and I said, because Brett and I were in, in contact with the minute that came out, we saw the New York Times, we both read it and we, and we, and we, you know, contacted each other immediately. Cause this is like, this is what we've been looking for, which is the actual sort of source material. And I'd never done this before. And it's really, I felt it was sort of guessing really what would, you know, what would the story hold? And so we sort of, you know, batted it around for a while and came up with this, this format, which is originally, I think eight, eight episodes. And then we turned it into seven episodes. What led you to deciding that this needed to just be, uh, I, I mean, because for the most part, I, I, I finished the series over the weekend. I don't want to give up away too many things about what's happening outside of what people obviously already know from the news. But what led you to deciding this needed to be a three-character piece for the most part with a couple of supporting parts, but rather than like this huge tapestry of the prison, you know, like the correctional system and government and media and everything else that probably could have been brought in because— it was very, you're so devoted to the perspective of these three characters and what they're going through over the course of the series. Well, for us, I think that's what we were interested in was the actual relationships that developed as more than sort of telling sort of a, like a mosaic of all the different aspects of the manhunt and things like that. Cause that, first of all, that, that stuff would have had to sort of come in later in the series in introducing a new character to, to sort of, you know, lead the manhunter, you know, that, that just felt a little bit artificial. So when we were doing the research, we met with the inspector general who wrote the report, Catherine Leahy Scott, and in meeting with her, we just thought she was a really interesting person. It would be a really great framework for the story. And originally we kind of had more of her in the story because she did interviews with David Sweat and with uh, Joyce Mitchell that a lot of those transcripts are, are what we use for research. But, you know, ultimately it was just really the, the, the relationship that developed in prison between the, the three of them was really, to me, the core of it, which is, and, and Joyce's husband, um, Lyle, who worked at the prison also. Those four characters were the people who were, um, the story was centered around because they were developing this relationship with her that they ultimately used to help them get out. And she really got drawn into it. And she wasn't a marriage with, a guy who worked at the prison and, you know, you know, they, they, it was a real relationship. So just, it was more the human aspect of that was interesting to me as much as the actual mechanics of the escape also, which I thought were really interesting too, but how they got to that was basically being able to develop a physical relationships and also just these friendships that occurred inside the ecosystem of the prison so that's why we focused it on on the people because I thought the people were the most interesting aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, Gene talks about that gray area in prison, and it seems like he's comfortable living in that gray area, but didn't ever expect it to break that hard, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that he was also just used to that. That was sort of the status quo in the prison, and that that's you know he he'd been a, a, a corrections officer there for a long time, but you know most of the the corrections officers there generationally have worked there, either their fathers or, or their even their grandfathers have worked there. You know, that part of the state, it's just, that's the main economy in that part of the state. I really appreciate, Ben, that you said um, human moments of the human relationships because I think that's what I was most impressed with with the series that I've watched so far is your focus on the, the, the human interactions on a very base level, sort of emotional honesty between the characters, the very specific 
not even TikTok, but like how they went into certain rooms and how they were able to be private away from people. There's a lot of attention paid to detail, which I think makes it a much more rewarding story overall. And I wondered how you approached that balance, because there's such a fine line here. You know, it's reflected in the signs you said that were <laughs> awaiting you when you got upstate, assuming <laughs> that this was going to be, you know, Tropic Thunder 3 breakout or something. And finding that line between human behavior and comedy is something that I think you've really excelled at in your acting, certainly. And I was curious about how you brought that to bear on a true-to-life story like this from the director's chair. Well, I guess I felt the tone of it would be dictated by, you know, what actually happened. I mean, we really did go off of those transcripts a lot. And I got a chance to meet David Sweat also and, you know, talk to him and for a few hours. And that was really informative just to get a feeling of like what this guy was like and watching the interviews that Joyce Mitchell did with Matt Lauer um, and then getting up there and meeting the people up there. uh, The the tone of it to me felt like it should be very real. And I didn't know it was going to, I feel like it might've gone a little bit darker and more serious than maybe even I I thought originally, but I didn't, and maybe even I think Showtime might've thought at first it was going to maybe be, you know, a a little bit uh, kind of more like a dark comedy or the, or the, you know, kind of like the ironic aspect of what was going on. But to me, that the, the, the goal was always just to sort of show the real events that happened and these real interactions with people that I found kind of amazing that um, the things that happened in that prison could happen. And then when I got up to the prison and we finally got access to go inside the prison, which I never thought we actually would have because the New York State Department of Corrections didn't really uh, help us out. Uh, until we had the help of the governor. So about six weeks before shooting was the first time we ever even got in the prison. And at that point, we were very close to to shooting. I've been working on it for a year, and I didn't think we'd ever even get get close to it. So going in there, it was so oppressive. And it was, you know, to go into that cell block and feel the the tension and the stress and really just like the heaviness of it, it just sort of informed, you know, the feeling of, to me, of, of what the show was, which is these people are all stuck in this prison all the time, including the corrections officers and the civilian workers who go there and work and and they have pride in their jobs, but it's also a really tough job and it's really stressful and it it just kind of takes over your life. I I could understand why these people would want to get out. And so we just sort of tried to let the reality sort of inform the tone of it. And these things happen and and these relationships between corrections officers and inmates, but also uh, civilian workers in in these prisons, it goes on all the time. One of the, corrections officers that works there told me that he'd been there for 30 years Said he said in his 30 years there he'd seen the type of thing that happened between uh, Tilly and and those guys happen at least two dozen times Jeez. over you know 30 years he's seen that yeah what you were saying about wanting to get out I mean I think that's also reflected in the way that that you and your team chose to shoot it I mean it, it's almost indistinguishable who's in a prison cell and who's yeah. in their home or apartment what with the the snow and the darkness and the way you've lit it and that's very effective I think I wanted to sort of steer specifically the same idea of, of giving allowing the characters to have some humanity and some dignity to Patricia Arquette's performance which for me was really um, really remarkable and really sort of grounded me in the in the type of story you ended up telling. Again, you sort of you, you take that character, and it, it would be so easy, I think, to get this wrong and make her um, from the start a villain, a harridan, a caricature. And I don't think either of you did that. And I think that's really a testament to the work that you both did. That it's not that way. You've allowed her to have, um, and again, at least through the the first half of the season that I've seen, we we understand emotionally her frustration. 
she is a, a living person despite being, you know, uh, a woman in a small town, older than protagonists we often see. She has sexual desires. She has agency. All of that is in there. Can you talk about working with Patricia on on the character and what we ended up seeing on the screen? Yeah, I, I think Patricia, you know, just as an actress, really approaches the character as a human being and is not thinking about, you know, she's not thinking about her as a good person or a bad person. I think she's just trying to understand who she is and get get some sort of um, an insight into why she's doing what she's doing. And I think that's her process, which I don't even know how she does it. I mean, I, 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 I know that she has, you know, she, she has no problem just getting into being the character and not worrying about being likable or looking a certain way. She just, you know, she's just there to be the person to try to figure out how to connect with the human side of that person. I think, She's also very concerned about finding the humanity in that person, you know? That was so important to her. So she did whatever she needed to do for herself to to find a, a, the heart and soul inside of, of Tilly without worrying about portraying her as a good person or a bad person. And I think she's a complicated character because she's, she's a very manipulative person when you really read these transcripts and you, and you watch her be interviewed. You can tell that she's like, she's, you know, she's got a lot going on inside that she's not really revealing. And then I talked to also to other prisoners who were in the tailor shop with her. And, you know, I just heard these stories about what she would do in the tailor shop and how she would flirt with the uh, inmates and how she really seemed to enjoy that dynamic. I think what's interesting about the story is she's a woman who's being manipulated, but is also being manipulative. But she is a human being who has those, you know, who, who has those desires, and I think use that and it was an important part of who she, she is. And that became, I think for her, the way she was, she was being used. And as a woman in this, you know, in a, in a room with 40 guys, you know, that was a big part of her power in that room. And, and I think that was, that was a big part of, you know, who she was. And I think that shows that, you know, both her as a manipulator and also someone being taken advantage of too. So on that flip side then, Ben, like, what do you do with somebody like Benicio, who's so idiosyncratic in his performances and is is kind of iconic? I mean, any movie that he's in kind of almost becomes a Benicio Del Toro movie, no matter how much he's on screen. And he's got this this presence. And then but then you obviously have this sense of accuracy and you have like this larger story you're trying to tell. Like, he's incredible in this in, in, in this piece. Well, how do you work with somebody like that who's who's so... So oh, it's amazing. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a crazy experience. I mean, I I you know like crossed paths with Benicio over the years. We're kind of like the same age, and so like over the years we, we we've met up. I never worked with him, and I've always enjoyed his work. And but you know, found you famously lost that part in Sicario to him. We all know <laughs> it could have gone another way. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know he's he's a he's a daunting guy, and um, I felt. You know, when I looked at these images of Richard Matt, of the real Richard Matt, there were elements of Benicio that really matched up, and there were other elements that, you know, didn't quite match up, but he had this magnetism about him. And yeah, so it became about meeting with Benicio and talking about the character. Benicio is also a painter, and so I think that was a connection for him into the into who this guy was. And I think, you know, like Patricia, he, he has the same desire to get to the 
humanity of the of the character to, to understand this person as you know not as one thing or the other, but for for him to go in and play a guy like this, I, I think he is very concerned with trying to find a way in that's that's interesting and somehow that there's a logic to what this person does. Uh, for me, directing him, it was really just kind of like trying to figure out. And we really went through the story. I mean. You know his process is very involved, and he gets he gets really involved in in the script, and you know relating it to the real things that happened. We brought he came up with Paul and I to visit with David Sweat. So we all spent about six hours with him, and obviously he couldn't re, you know meet Richard Matt because because he's not around anymore. But I think he did the research on him, and you know was just really trying to find his way into making this guy in his own way, as scary as he is, a human being also, because there, there was that side to him. And we should talk about the third member of the Troika. Um, I was just thrilled to see Paul Dano just, yeah. just swole up out of his mind. Yeah. I mean, I, did you give him his <laughs> yeah. physical regime? Did you monitor his carbs? I'm just curious about this because I did not know he had I that did. in him. <laughs> I fed him, him and Patricia carbs, personally. <laughs> um, you know, Patricia, she, she, she changed her body, but, but Paul, that was the first thing we talked about was, David Sweat was a guy, and, and when we met with Sweat last year, he was, he was very, he's small, he's skinny. He talks about building himself up in prison and bulking up because he was, he was afraid of, of being hurt in prison by either corrections officers or other inmates. He just was a guy who was not naturally, you know, pumped like that, but he had to put on an air. He kind of put on a character in prison to, uh, you know, be out, out, out of fear. And I, and I felt like he had, when, when I met him, he had this sensitivity about him that, uh, you know, Paul, I think definitely has, you know, Paul's really wonderful actor. And that was the first thing he did was like, all right, let's get you the trainer and let's put on some muscle. And he was, he was, he just finished working on his film. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it was, I think, you know, for him, it was kind of like a total departure and being able to sink into it. And it was a long shoot. It was like a, almost, I guess we were shooting, you know, for, seven and a half months or so. Um, and he had to maintain that for a long time. So he did, he, uh, he, I thought he did an amazing job. One of the things that I love about Paul's performance is that it feels like he could have like, if he walked onto the set of dog day or, or straight time, like it would just make, he is so naturalistic <laughs> and his way of like kind of just being in that world feels so real. And I know that you've talked a little bit about the influence of, uh, some of those '70s American cinema movies on on this work that you did here. Can you tell it? Tell me a little bit because I think people bring that stuff like we throw around all the President's Men or we throw around Dog Day as a something that everybody aspires to 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 be working more like in a vein like that. But what do those movies mean to you? And and what was it that in, inspired you and influenced you when you were making Escape? Well, those movies mean a lot to me just because of that. You know, that's my generation. Those are the movies I watched growing up. So I mean, as much as. Dog Day Afternoon, or The Godfather, or um, Marathon Man, or Poseidon Adventure, or Towering Inferno. You know, they're all like they're all things like movies that I went to see. I mean, Planet of the Apes. You know, I, these are the movies I went to see over and over again as a kid. And I guess it's just you know maybe it's the age you are when you see films that they really have an impact on you. But I, I think you know what those movies, maybe not Planet of the Apes or Towering Inferno, <laughs> um, but like you know those those movies have this really amazing texture and reality, both both visually and in terms of the acting and the story. I think they, you know, it's not glossy. It's pre-glossy. It's pre, you know, uh, 
test screenings, really, I think, you know, in terms of how main characters are allowed to be in movies. And, you know, like, I mean, Straight Time is a good example. I remember the first time I saw Straight Time, I just really was not expecting that story to go where it went. Because I thought, okay, there's this guy, it's called Straight Time, he's getting out of jail, he's putting his life together. <laughs> it just, like, goes off you know, a cliff and he just goes the other way. And that was just so surprising and, and exciting to see because you just didn't know where it was going to go. And I, I, so those movies to me and Dog Dad's News, like, I guess, you know, probably like one of my top five favorite movies. And that's, you know, because the, the characters are just very, very real and obviously brilliantly acted, but they're real people and there's humor and there's, it, it's, there's seriousness and there's no specific genre that it falls into, which is why they would never really probably be made today or be successful films today. And then visually, you know, for me, those movies, and there's a bunch of different cinematographers, but, you know, those guys were just working with natural light and sort of figuring out uh, these looks. I mean, one of the movies that I really, uh, really love is Taking Pelham 123. Yeah. And, you know, that's Owen Roysman, the cinematographer who, you know, who shot a lot of those great films. And I, I listened to some podcasts with him, some like American Cinematographers podcast or American Society Cinematographers, where he talks about, you know, just trying to figure out how to shoot in the subway tunnels. And they just literally just, you know, they had to find faster film and they didn't, you know, they, they had a very few lights they could bring down there. Now what, what, what everybody does, I think, it, it, at least if you have that aesthetic, if you like that, is you're trying to figure out ways to make it look like it used to, when that was just sort of organically just how it was looking because of what, you know, the film stock and the lenses and, and the approach to the lighting. So I, I just felt, I, I honestly didn't have that idea for this going into it. It sort of developed out of going uh, up to, up to Danamora and then being, you know, tonally knowing that I wanted it to have a real kind of vibe, but then starting to see the prison and going into the real prison, it's like you're going back in time anyway, because, you go through the doors and you can't, you have to leave your cell phone. So there's no cameras, no cell phones. The only communication in there is really people talking to each other on walkie talkies or if you're a prisoner and you know, you're passing notes to somebody secretly, that's literally how it's happening. So it could have been 1970 in there. And that to me felt like as we sort of developed, you know, the look and I found this cinematographer, Jessica Lee Gagne, who did a movie uh, called Sweet Virginia last year that I thought was really cool looking that's how how we met i i thought uh you know we started to look at some of those movies and talk about it and it kind of developed out of that i like that we were talking um about the way things used to look or maybe a little bit about the way uh, movies used to be made because i'd love to take a step back for a second and just sort of ask you about how this experience maybe has changed what interests you what you'd like to be doing because obviously the industry is kind of at a strange time or at least a crossroads this is the first time that you've engaged with these new opportunities available on television. A story like this, you know, in the past would have been a, a two-hour movie. Um, now you can get these incredible stars, Oscar winners, to do a seven-hour piece. You know, you said it was multiple months of shooting. And at the same time, you're still finding pockets of time to, to deliver performances like you did in Meyerowitz stories, which I just wanted to name check since we have you on the phone, because I just think that's an incredible film <laughs> and one of your best performances. Did this experience, being able to tell a story like this at this scale, this scope for this service, excite you about these possibilities? Or is it more a feeling of freedom that you know you could do this or go jump back into bigger budget films when, when and if the time is right? You know, it wasn't a really a preconceived idea. I, I, I think it was just that this story 
came up, this opportunity came up, and it was, I think it's it just a, sort of a product of the fact that this is the kind of thing that, you know, you're they're doing now uh, on television as opposed to in the movies. At least it's much harder to get, as you're saying, you know, it's, it, 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 and I was saying too, it's harder to get a movie made like this nowadays. And so there's the opportunity to do it in this format, in this medium. So that was really all that came, it came out of that. It came, you know, I was coming off of Zoolander 2, which was, you know, um, not a big hit. <laughs> so it was kind of like, all right, um, you know, like, you know, where do I go now? What am I doing? What do I want to be doing? I have the production company and stuff in development, but it was, a, it was an interesting time. And I actually did Meyerowitz right after, literally like right after Zoolander 2 came out and had gotten the scripts on this and was basically in the process of saying like, I, I, I'm really, really interested in it, but I don't think I can do it because we don't have enough information about what happened. So, when the inspector general report came out, I didn't have a lot going on. I had the time to, to work on this with, with the guys and to go up there and start researching. And I think if I'd been bombarded with other opportunities at that time, I, I think, you know, I might've, you know, not stuck with it as long as it took to actually get it made. Cause it wasn't that easy to get it, to find a home for it. And ultimately you know, we had battles along the way in terms of actually getting it to the point where it got greenlit and made because of, budget and um and other things but yeah i think the opportunities are there in, in television now that it, because there's just so much there's so many more places to do things that, that are interested in doing interesting stuff i i hope it comes back to the movies i think netflix uh it talked about this a little bit when we did Meyerowitz, but you know netflix is one of the few places that is that is making movies that are in different genres that are interesting like that it's just the the catches you don't really get to see them on the screen yeah, I mean, that's a that's a, just such a... We talk about that all the time. It's such a mixed bag. I think it's going to be such a huge issue going into the award season this year, especially with with Roma and with, with the Coen Brothers movie where, you know, these are these are two... Well, at least Roma will, will probably get nominated for Best Picture. And it's something that, on one hand, people are going to get to watch all over the world on their, you know, a, as soon as they want. But on the other hand, you know, it's a film like that, you kind of would want to have that reverential experience going to the theater. Yeah, and I honestly think filmmakers really want that. And I, I don't have any inside information. I, you know, I, I, I experienced what we went through on Meyerowitz because it went to Cannes, and it was. Then I think some, some sort of you know backlash a little after that. You know, to me, the filmmakers always going to want to see your movie up on the screen. You're always going to want that. And I think the same way, like everybody said, film was going to sort of disappear. You know, shooting on film was going to disappear. I think there's just too many filmmakers who really, you know, insist on doing it that way because they feel that's the way you should make a movie to have that option. I think the Netflix model, because Ted Serranos is a, a pretty smart guy who really does love movies, but he, he's, uh, he obviously has figured out this, you know, amazing model for his business. But I think he, he's going to, uh, I hope, eventually kind of realize the screen experience is really important for an audience and for the filmmaker. So it feels like it might, might you know, come around in some way. I, I don't think it's ever going to go away totally. Well, Ben, you've been really generous with your time. I would just have two quick final questions to ask you. One being, I, you, you've said numerous times, you know, how much the Inspector General's actual report informed the storytelling decisions you made. But I can't help but assume that one moment um, was ripped straight from your own life that you brought to bear on the screen, which is the ability um, to have a transformative emotional storytelling experience in your own head to a Nick Jonas song. And I wondered if you could just talk <laughs> a little bit about... Why you were willing to share that part of yourself? And why with was us. it chains of all the Nick Jonas jams? <laughs> um, 
Well, my deep love of Nick Jonas' music is probably where it all stems from. Sure. Um, no, I mean, that came purely from the fact that, you know, Joyce Mitchell did listen to his top 40 radio station in the tailor shop um, all the time. She would play, play this 95 X at station. And so we just went and got their playlist from January to June of 2015. And that was, that was the inspiration for any song that you hear in, in there. And then Chains seemed to me just sort of like, <laughs> it's a, you know, very obvious sort of parallel. And, and then there was just like, I just, I actually think it's a very good song. It's a really it, good it, it song. Is, it's catchy and for it, sure. It's catchy. I'm okay. I, yeah, it's a catchy. No, it's song. a it's a good I'm, song. I'm Ben. I don't know what's wrong with him. I'm, je- I'm a jealous guy. Yeah, jealous is his best song. Yeah, right. But did that fit <laughs> right. the moment yet? Because Matt was inmate. Matt wasn't even stepping to her. I know. Yet. You I understand mean, I, the context. Ben, I actually have to say that one of my favorite lines in the entire series <laughs> is when Lyle says, "I'm more of a news and weather guy," as if that's a genre of music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's, yeah, but that's Lyle too. Like yeah. he really, that's, you know. And I actually ran into. I don't. I I've, I've never met Nick Jones. I ran into him about three weeks ago, and and uh, was so excited to <laughs> tell him that we're featuring his uh, his song in the show. And this, he seems kind of nonplussed. Oh, it's a whole new phase of his career is about to open up. He doesn't realize. Um, finally, I, we have to ask you this since we're so excited to have had the opportunity to talk with you. But this was an internal debate here. Um, our podcast, as you know, is called The Watch, and I just have to be sure that you didn't think you were coming on to a fan podcast devoted to your 2012 <laughs> film, The Watch. Is that what you were prepared well, I, to talk I about? It, when I saw it in the podcast listening, I thought, you know, the listings, I was like, oh my God, The Watch, finally, it's found its audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> still waiting for it to find its audience. It's, um, you know, that's... That movie was original, not originally called The Watch. I don't know if you're. No, aware I remember of that. it was Neighborhood Watch, right? And there was it, it was Neighborhood Watch, and then all of a sudden Neighborhood Watch, you know, became a, a thing you couldn't say because of the Trayvon Martin incident, and it was just like it, it, it just was a decision they made, and like wow, that's crazy. So yeah, we did not name it after. I know your podcast is not named after our movie, so maybe it might be worth starting up a sub. Well, well, we, weirdly, okay. our podcast was also originally Neighborhood Watch, but then Chris and I moved farther apart from each other. Yes, that's right. But but were you prepared in a pinch to discuss like the future dynamics of like Evan and Jamarcus's relationship? Like, could <laughs> were you ready? Yeah. <laughs> what Neighborhood Watch expanded universe is sitting the right there. Name. That's good IP. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying so. so <laughs> So obviously, back, obviously, you're 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 uh, about to launch the series, and thank you for talking to us about it. But when you are ready to consider the expanded The Watch universe and the ways there could be overlaps between, I'll say it again, your 2012 film and this podcast, we are available to you. We just want to make that clear. All right, I'll get I'll get Akiva in, in touch with you guys, and we'll uh, make it happen. Thanks I'm so ready. much for uh, spending time with us today, Ben. Uh, really, I'm really okay. the show is great, and thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. I enjoy you guys. I like listening to the podcast, so thanks, guys. Thanks, Take care, man. man. Thank you. 
Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Oxygen Up and Vanished. Payne Lindsay's hit true crime podcast, Up and Vanished, comes to life in a one-night special TV event on Oxygen. Two years ago, Payne began exploring the shocking disappearance of a young school teacher and former beauty queen named Tara Grinstead, who vanished over a decade earlier. Payne is still at work searching for the truth. Don't miss Up and Vanished, a one-night special TV event. Catch up on Oxygen On Demand. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostats, all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice, and is backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you play everything you love from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more, all with rich sound that fills the room. It's super simple to set up, but if you don't want to bother, Sonos will send somebody to do it for you. That's right. If you live in any major metropolitan area up and running, we'll have a Sonos expert deliver and set up your system absolutely free. It's not that hard to set up, but man, I'm glad I had up and running come and do it because I feel like I have that much more confidence that I got the best possible configuration for my living room, for my TV, for my Sonos Beam. So if you have a chance, just order from Sonos.com and select up and running at checkout if you qualify. I highly recommend that. 